morning, Grace Hebrews chapter 8, if you haven't turned there in your Bibles yet. There's this old episode of Night Gallery that captures uh, the desire of human beings, this desire that we all have at times to go back to the good old days. But this episode, which is titled, They're Tearing Down Tim Riley's Bar, also gives us a compelling reason why we can't go back. Because to dwell on the past can be detrimental to us. The episode, They're Tearing Down Tim Riley's Bar, centers around a man named Randolph Lane, whose wife had passed away. So he's a widower, and he's a hard worker. And Randolph has put in 25 years for his company, but he was a drunk. His grief at the loss of his wife led him to the bottle as a way to cope with the sadness of losing his wife. And one day, Randolph hears that they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar. And so Randolph walks down to the pub on his lunch break. And Randolph had many memories at Tim Riley's bar. It's where he took his late wife on their first date. It's where his family threw him a party after he returned home safely from the war. And as he stands outside Tim Riley's bar grieving that they're actually about to tear down this staple, he hears voices inside the bar singing, for he's a jolly good fellow. And so he looks through the windows and he begins to have visions of the many evenings that he has spent there. And he he sees his old friends in the bar singing. He sees his father. He sees his late wife. And he wants to go back. But then he's snapped back to reality. Fast forward to the episode, and we find Randolph standing outside the first home that he and his wife bought. He no longer lives there, but he heard that they were tearing it down too. And so Randolph goes there to relive the past, and he hears his wife's voice. And then once again, he's snapped back to reality. Randolph eventually loses his job on his 25th anniversary at the company, and he loses his job because his drinking habit has finally caught up with him. But a coworker pleads with his boss to give Randolph his job back because, one, he's been their best employee, but he never got the recognition that he deserves. And two, his coworker explains to his boss the reason uh, he was drinking so much recently is because he's grieving the loss of his wife. Even though it had been many years, he was still grieving. And so the episode ends with Randolph standing outside Tim Riley's bar as the wrecking ball is about to hit. He's overcome with sadness that his past is about to be destroyed. And then he hears singing in a store across the street. He hears people singing, for he's a jolly good fellow. So he runs over there, expecting it to be the people of his past that were in Tim Riley's bar. And he he runs into this store and finds his boss and his co-workers are throwing him a party for his 25 years at the company. His boss then apologizes for taking him for granted and not giving him the credit he deserves. And as the episode ends, you see the wrecking ball slamming into the front of Tim Riley's bar. Randolph Lane wanted to go back to his past, to what he knew, but he was actually missing out on the good that was in his present life. In the same way, the Hebrews were being tempted to return to the temple. They were being 
tempted to go back to their past, to all of their memories of worshiping and singing at the temple. They were being pressured to go back to the temple and to offer sacrifices according to the Mosaic law. But to go back to the temple would be to walk away from Jesus. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, even if they went back to the temple, in a few years of this sermon being written and delivered to the Hebrews, in a few short years of this letter being written, the temple in Jerusalem would be no more. In a few short years of the book of Hebrews being written, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Roman emperor Titus in 70 AD. In 70 AD, Titus took a wrecking ball to the temple and to Jerusalem and destroyed it. The temple where the Hebrews used to worship and where they're being tempted to return would eventually be torn down just like Tim Riley's bar. And so what the preacher wants to tell the Hebrews in our passage today is this. God has written, it is finished on your heart. The Hebrews wanted to return to the law, to go back to do this and live. And so the pastor to the Hebrews will tell them in this section that God has written the words done. It is finished on their hearts. The words that Jesus uttered from his lips in John 19 as he was on the cross Right before his death, after he completely fulfilled the law on our behalf, those words are now written on our hearts. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the new covenant. God writes, it is finished on the hearts of all of those who trust in Jesus and repent of their sins. In the new covenant, all of the commandments and curses of the law have been taken care of by Jesus for us. Jesus fulfilled the law for us through his obedient life. Theologians refer to this as his active obedience. He actively obeyed the law on our behalf. The late J. Gresham Machen sent a telegram on his deathbed to a friend that said, So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. That Jesus actively fulfilled the law on our behalf. That's his active obedience. And Jesus bore the curse of the law for us through his obedient death. Theologians refer to that as his passive obedience, that he laid down his life and took our sin, our blame on the cross. And so we are not only saved by the death of Jesus, but something that doesn't get emphasized as much as we are saved by the life of Jesus, that he actively lived the life that we should have lived. And so the good news of the gospel is that where the law says do, God says done. Where Moses wrote the law on stone tablets, God writes the law on our hearts. Where it was once written on our hearts, be perfect. God comes along and writes, done, complete, perfect because of Jesus. Where it is written on our hearts, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God comes along and writes, done, Jesus has done that for you. All the demands of the law 
that are written on our hearts. For those who are in union with Christ, God writes, done. Jesus has done that for you. He's completed and fulfilled the law for you. Now, let me show you where I'm getting all of that. So look at Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So what the preacher is saying is that if the Mosaic covenant found in the law, which was given at Mount Sinai, if it had been faultless, there would be no need for a new covenant. If there was nothing wrong with the Mosaic covenant, which stressed do this and live, do this and experience blessing, if there was nothing wrong with that covenant, then there would be no need for a new one. But there was something faulty with it. The law can tell you what to do, but it cannot empower you to do it. As Paul says in Romans 8 verses 3 and 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. See, under the old covenant, the law could not empower obedience. And that's why there needed to be another covenant, a better covenant. But what is the old covenant? When we talk about the old covenant, what is the old covenant? It's not the Old Testament. And the new covenant is not necessarily the New Testament. What is the old covenant? When the preacher speaks of the old covenant here, he's not just simply talking about the Old Testament in general. Rather, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant, which God made with Israel at Mount Sinai when they came out of Egypt. So the old covenant equals the Mosaic covenant. And he tells us that in verse 8. Look at verse 8. For he, God, finds fault with them, the Israelites, when he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So the preacher tells us that there was fault found with the old covenant. And the proof of that is that he quotes the prophet Jeremiah here. He tells the Hebrews that the new covenant is nothing like the Mosaic covenant, which God made with Israel at Mount Sinai when he led them out of slavery in Egypt. In his grace, Yahweh came to Israel and led them by the hand out of slavery in Egypt. He took them by the hand It was grace. It was all grace. But how did Israel respond to that grace? Well, throughout her sad history recorded in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel failed. They did not continue in the covenant. They had some moments of obedience and trust, but they repeatedly failed to keep the covenant. But please understand this about the Old Covenant. It is not as though the law had failed. It is not as though God's law had failed. No, the law, God's law is holy. It is righteous. It is good because it comes from God. The problem is not with God's law. The problem is with Israel. The problem is with us. We are sinful. And because we are sinful, the law cannot give us life. The law 
cannot give us the power to obey its demands. It, it cannot undo the effects of our sin. And so the law given at Mount Sinai under the Old Covenant exposes us for who we are, sinners. The law crushes us. And it shows us that we cannot save ourselves. And so why did God give the law? Why did God give the law? The law was given to drive us to Christ. Paul says in Galatians 3.24 that the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law does exactly what God intended it to do. To show us our sin and to point us to Jesus. If the law could remove our guilt, and if we could keep it perfectly then there would be no need for a newer covenant. And when the preacher says in verse 9, let me point this out to you because it it jumps off the page to me when I read it. When he says in verse 9 that the Lord did not show concern for Israel, he's not saying that God did not love or care for the nation of Israel. We know that he did because it was in his grace that he led them by the hand out of slavery in Egypt. What the preacher means is that because Israel did not continue in the covenant because they failed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, because they chased after other lovers and chased after other gods, then Yahweh sent the Babylonians to Jerusalem and they took a wrecking ball to the temple and destroyed it. The glorious temple that Solomon built in 1 Kings, because Israel turned away from Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, He sent the Babylonians and they took a wrecking ball to that beautiful, glorious temple. They tore down the temple just like they tore down Tim Riley's bar in that episode of Night Gallery. And then the Babylonians carted the Israelites off to Babylon. That is precisely why God makes a new covenant. Because Israel did not and Israel could not keep the old covenant. They were not faithful. Keep in mind, too, that the quotation here uh, from Jeremiah comes from sermons that he was preaching to the nation of Israel as they were in exile in Babylon. This is proof that the Lord loves his people as they were experiencing the covenant curses of exile in Babylon because they walked away from the Lord. The Lord came to him in his grace through the prophet Jeremiah, to preach good news to them, to give them hope. You know that passage we always quote, for I know the plans I have for you, plans give you a future and a hope. We we take that out of context. It's not about us or America. That was about the exiles, the, the Israelites in exile in Babylon. There's a future and a hope for you. Hold on. 70 years in exile because you walked away from the Lord. Hold on. Let me give you a little bit of good news. That's what Jeremiah was doing as he was preaching to them. And so as the Israelites were sitting in Babylon in exile, Jeremiah preaches the gospel to the nation of Israel and tells them that God is going to make a new covenant one day where God would do all of the work. He would come to them in grace and he would fulfill the demands of the law on their behalf. Now, they couldn't see the full picture, but God's plan was to send his son Jesus to live the life that they should have lived and to die the death that they all deserved and then to credit them with Jesus' righteousness. They couldn't see that fully. We see it fully now because we're looking back. They were looking forward to that. In other words, the prophet Jeremiah, who the preacher is quoting here, he was saying to those Israelites in exile that the day would come 
when all who trust in their Redeemer would even be able to say to one another with confidence, God has written, it is finished on your heart. That's good news for Israel in exile. That's good news for us because if you remember from our series in 1 Peter a few years ago, we are exiles. And that's good news for the Hebrews who are also exiles waiting for the city that was to come. Look now at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So, what's new about the new covenant? How would the exiles in Babylon have interpreted Jeremiah's sermon? The words that get quoted by the preacher of Hebrews here. And how would the Hebrews, these Jewish believers... How would they have interpreted the preacher's quotation of Jeremiah in his sermon? Because they knew this passage well. I think they would have realized that many aspects of the new covenant that are mentioned in these verses are not new at all. I think they would have said, hey, those things aren't new. For instance, when the preacher says in verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, I think the Hebrews would have said, that's not new. God's law is already written on our hearts. Do you know that God's law is already written on the hearts? It was already written on the, law, the hearts of the Old Testament saints. David tells us that in the Psalms. Psalm 37, verse 30 to 31. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. And then again in Psalm 40, verse 8, David says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So the writing of the law of God on his people's heart is not new in the new covenant. This was a reality for old covenant saints. The law was in their hearts. In fact... God's law is written on the heart of every single human being born into this world. What does Paul say in Romans 2? For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Romans 2, 14 to 15. So the law of God is written on the heart of every single human being. And therefore, every single human being is without excuse. And the writing of the law of God on the hearts of his people is not new in the new covenant. Now, I'll explain in a moment what I believe verse 10 means and what the preacher is saying there. But let's look at these other aspects of the new covenant that are mentioned in these verses. And what we will discover is that they too were already realities for saints under the old covenant. For example, the phrase there that says, I will be their God and they shall be my people in verse 10. That was already a reality under the Old Covenant too. God says this numerous times in the Old Testament. In Genesis 7, 17, 8, and I will, to Abraham, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. 
Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And Leviticus 26, verse 12. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. It was already reality for the Old Covenant saints. In fact, Jeremiah says this exact phrase several times in his sermons that he's preaching to the exiles in Babylon when he tells them about how Yahweh said these exact words to the nation of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt before he instituted the Mosaic Covenant in Jeremiah 7.23. But this command I gave them, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. And then again in Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 4, that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, listen to my voice and do all that I command you, so you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And so the promise that God would be our God and we would be his people is not new in the Old Covenant. It was a reality for Old Covenant saints. In fact, this theme gets picked up in several places in the New Testament as well. And I agree with Old Testament scholar Alec Motier, who says that this is really the big idea of the Bible. You know, every week I give a big idea for my sermon. Alec Motier says, this is the big idea of the Bible. He says, the whole Bible is bound together around the single theme, I will be your God and you will be my people. The same way of salvation is found right throughout the Bible. Sinners are saved Under the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant in the same way. It's by grace through faith in a Redeemer. Sinners under the Old Covenant experience regeneration by the Spirit of God the exact same way that we do. They were declared righteous and justified the exact same way that we are. They were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God in exactly the same way that we are. The difference is they were looking forward to the Redeemer to come and we look back knowing that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. But the same way of salvation is found right through the Bible. It's by grace through faith in a Redeemer. And so this promise, I will be your God and you will be my people, is not new in the new covenant. God has always promised to be the God of his people. Now, let's look at the next phrase in verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Well, what does this verse mean? What does it mean that in the new covenant there will be no teaching? Because everyone will know the Lord, from the oldest all the way down to the youngest one in the nursery. Well, it certainly doesn't mean that we won't have people teaching the Bible to others because that's going on in this church right now. As I am preaching, I am teaching. And as I am preaching, there are other people teaching in the various classrooms. We have people teaching our youth group on Tuesday nights. We have people in this room who haven't signed up yet for Awana but who are going to, right? And they're going to teach God's word to young kids on Wednesday night, right? So teaching is occurring all the time in churches It doesn't mean that we won't have teachers because what does Paul tell us in Ephesians 4.11? That God in his grace gave teachers to the church so that we would grow up to maturity. So what does this mean? That 
There'll be no more teaching. No more saying, know the Lord, because everyone from the youngest to the oldest will know the Lord. Here's what it means. Under the old covenant, the priests were the ones who had a very special relationship with Yahweh, with the Lord. They were the only ones who could enter into the inner court, and the high priest was the only one who could enter into the Holy of Holies, and that only one time a year. So the priests had this special relationship and this special knowledge of the Lord that other people did not have. Jeffrey Neal says this, uh, and I'm in debt to him concerning my interpretation and understanding of this passage. He says this, The old covenant priests were in a special relationship before the Lord whom they represented. In this relationship, they were granted a distinct knowledge of the Lord that others in Israel did not have, and therefore they were the teachers of Israel. In their priestly duties of sacrifice and temple ministrations, they revealed the manner of redemption to the Old Covenant congregation. These priests, in dealing with these ceremonial aspects of the law, revealed the gospel in pictures. The Levitical priests had a sort of intimacy, a type of knowing that was not common among the Israelites. I mean, nobody had a copy of the law. Nobody had their own copy of the Bible. Only the priests did. You had to go to them to learn and to grow. And so what the preacher of Hebrews is saying here in his quotation of Jeremiah is that in the new covenant, this special limited relationship that the priest had with the Lord, that it would go away and that everyone could know the Lord and everyone could know God intimately and everyone could know God's word. Every person in the new covenant can have this special relationship and this special uh, uh, access to God and to his word. As Pastor Greg mentioned in a sermon several weeks ago, we want to make disciples who are independently dependent on the word of God. So in the new covenant, we can all read the Bible for ourselves. All of us can read God's word and know God intimately. In the new covenant, we don't have these priests who represent us before God and and teach us about God. Because in the new covenant, we can all know God and we can all know his word. And so this special relationship and this teaching that was normal with the priests under the old covenant, that goes away in the new covenant. And one reason it goes away is because all the sacrifices go away. The priest would teach the nation as they offered sacrifices, as they revealed the gospel in pictures. They would say, when you brought an animal to be slain for your sins, they would say, your sins are being transferred to this animal and you're experiencing God's grace and there's a redeemer coming one day. We know from God's word, there's a redeemer coming one day who will live the life we should live and die the death we all deserve. And this is a picture of that redeemer who's supposed to come, the Messiah. And so our hope is in him. And so as we do these sacrifices, we're putting our hope in the redeemer who is to come. And so that kind of special relationship that the priests had in teaching the nation of Israel, it goes away in the new covenant. In the new covenant, we don't need priests because we have a great high priest in Jesus. We still have teachers, yes, but we don't need people to represent us before God. We still need to be taught God's word, yes, God gave teachers to the church to build us up to the maturity of the faith. So God thinks we still need them. So I'm going with God on this one. But one thing that we need to be taught and one thing that we need to hear over and over again from teachers and preachers and from one another is this beautiful gospel truth. 
This is what we should be telling each other all the time. God has written, it is finished on your heart. We need one another. We need to remind one another that it is finished and that Jesus paid it all. We need to challenge one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to rehearse the gospel with one another. And we definitely need to let one another know often the truth of verse 12. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Obviously, God being merciful to sinners and forgiving their sins is not new in the new covenant. This is how God has always dealt with sinners since Genesis 3. God has always been merciful to sinners and forgiven their sins, so this can't be new in the new covenant. Here's just a sample of the many verses in the Old Testament to prove that. Psalm 32, 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 103, verse 3. And verse 12, who forgives all your iniquity. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 38, 17, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Micah 7, 19, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Deuteronomy 4.31, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. Nehemiah 9.31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. God has always been merciful to sinners and forgiven their sins. God always meets our mess, the messes that we make with our life because of sin. He always meets that with his mercy. He always meets our failures with his forgiveness. He, he always meets our guilt with his grace. He always meets our sin with his salvation. This is how God has always dealt with sinners since Genesis 3. Since the very first sinner sinned, he came in grace and mercy. So that's not new in the new covenant. So to recap, God's laws have been written on the heart of every human being born into this world. So that's not new in the new covenant. And God's laws have always been on the, written on the hearts of his people who are in covenant with him, so that's not new in the new covenant. And God has always been the God of his people, so that's not new in the new covenant. And God's people have always been taught about him, so that's not new in the new covenant. And God has always been merciful to sinners and forgiven their sins, so that's not new in the new covenant. And so the million-dollar question is, what is new about the new covenant? To answer that, we have to keep the context in mind. Who is the preacher preaching to? His sermon is directed at Jewish believers who left Judaism behind, but who are being tempted to return to the law and return to the sacrifices and return to the ceremonies and to return to the temple in Jerusalem. Keeping the context in mind will help us answer the question about what is new in the new covenant. So what is new about the new covenant according to Jeremiah and the preacher of Hebrews? What is new about the new covenant is that the ceremonial laws are written on the hearts of God's people. 
This is how God's grace was extended to his people under the old covenant. It happened through the ceremonial laws. It happened through the sacrifices. It happened through the rituals of cleanliness. It happened through the dietary laws. But in the new covenant, the ceremonial laws go away. They are now obsolete. We don't have to do certain things to be declared clean by a priest. So if you get a boil in your skin or a pimple on your face in the old covenant, teenagers, you had to go to a priest and say, am I clean yet? Can I worship Yahweh? You had to do that under the old covenant. That was part of the ceremonial laws of cleanliness. In the old covenant, if you touched unclean things, you were declared unclean and there was a procedure for you to go through so that you could be declared clean by a priest and then come and worship again. We don't have to abide by all those laws that are found in Exodus and Leviticus about wearing certain clothing. We don't have to practice circumcision anymore. The dietary restrictions are now obsolete. We can eat bacon. My goodness. Man, if anything is new and good about the new covenant. I mean, forgiveness of sins, eating bacon, right? All of those are ceremonial laws that have now been written on our hearts in the new covenant. However, God's moral law, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, that does not go away. That is binding on us always. It is binding on every single human being. We have to obey God's moral law. We don't have to obey the laws about what to do if you get a boil in your skin or a pimple, but God's moral law will always be binding on us. In fact, the moral law of God was in place on the hearts of humans before God ever gave the Ten Commandments at Sinai. Even before the Ten Commandments were given at Sinai, the Ten Commandments were already written on the heart of every single human being born into this world. And so the moral law being written on human hearts, that cannot be what's new about the New Covenant. The Ten Commandments being written on the heart cannot be what's new about the New Covenant. God's moral law, summed up in the Ten Commandments, was already written on every single human heart, even before the Ten Commandments were given at Sinai. And so God's moral law is binding on all human beings. But in the New Covenant, the ceremonial law is getting written on our hearts and on our minds, and therefore, we don't need them anymore. And that means that all of the sacrifices, all of the rituals, the food laws, the types and the shadows, everything that had to do with the outward administration of God's grace under the Old Covenant, it is all gone. Let me repeat that. It's very important to understand this point. Everything that had to do with the outward administration of grace under the Old Covenant is gone. They're obsolete. We don't do those things. All of the sacrifices and the ceremonial laws are now written on our heart because Jesus fulfilled them for us. Jesus fulfilled the law for us. And so we don't need the sacrifices anymore. We don't need the priests anymore. We don't need those ceremonies anymore. We don't need the dietary restrictions. We don't need the cleanliness laws that are spelled out in Leviticus All of the external aspects of the old covenant that pointed to Jesus are now gone because he fulfilled the law on our behalf. Jesus fulfilled the moral law on our behalf too. And so we still have to obey it. 
God's Ten Commandments are still binding on us. They're good. They come from God. But when it comes to the ceremonial laws, and that's the context here in Hebrews, we don't have to obey those anymore. We are called to keep the moral law that is written on our hearts, even though Jesus fulfilled that for us too, but we don't have to keep the ceremonial laws anymore because Jesus fulfilled them for us. They were all pointing to him. Remember, under the old covenant, the ceremonial laws were written on stone. In the new covenant, they're written on our hearts. Under the old covenant, Israel failed and failed miserably. They could not do it. In the new covenant, God is faithful and Jesus does it all for us. Written on every heart under the old covenant were the words, do it, be perfect. And now written on the hearts of all those in union with Christ in the new covenant are the words, done. It is finished. Jesus was perfect for you. Do this is written on every single human heart. Done is written on the hearts of those in union with Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the newness of the new covenant. John Bunyan wrote these words that capture the heart of the matter. He said, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the newness of the new covenant. And it sounds crazy, but the Hebrews actually wanted to go back to the old covenant. They wanted to go back to all of those ceremonial laws. They wanted to go back to the dietary laws, the the clean and unclean laws, having priests. But what they didn't realize is that the whole sacrificial system was now obsolete and fading away And it was actually on the verge of being destroyed permanently. Look at verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Just as Jesus predicted in Matthew 24, Jerusalem and the old covenant temple was destroyed by the Roman emperor Titus in 70 A.D. Jesus said, these things, this generation will not pass away until these things happen. He was speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 by the Roman uh, Emperor Titus. And Titus came in about year 66. And there was, there was already bad blood between the Jews and the Romans because the Jews were under Roman control. And it escalated to the point of Titus taking a wrecking ball to the temple in 70 AD. So within a few years of the writing of this sermon, the book of Hebrews, and it being delivered to the Hebrews, the temple was destroyed. It vanished in 70 AD when Titus and company took a wrecking ball to the temple. You can read Josephus, the Jewish historian, about the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple. It's awful. The carnage that happened in 70 AD as the city was being besieged by the Romans is horrendous. Read Josephus. Just Google Josephus, destruction of Jerusalem. It was, there were fires everywhere. There was so much blood in the streets that it was actually putting out the fires. People were eating their own children to stay alive. Over 1.1 million people died in 70 AD in Jerusalem because of what Titus and the Romans did. It's awful. You can read about the carnage in Josephus. And so the bottom line that the preacher is trying to get across to the Hebrews is this. 
you can't go back. And even if you go back to it in a few short years, that place is going to be leveled. God's final blow on the old covenant. You can't go back. You can't go back to the temple. You can't go back to what you grew up on. And so just like in that episode of Night Gallery where Randolph Lane wanted to go back to Tim Riley's bar, so too the Hebrews wanted to go back to the temple in Jerusalem. But in time, just like Tim Riley's bar was destroyed, the temple would be too. What the Hebrews were forgetting was this one glorious gospel truth. God has written, it is finished on your heart. Christian, Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all for you. Whatever it is that you want to run to today to find satisfaction, if it's not Jesus, it will leave you disappointed. Whatever it is you want to go back to, what other idol, God, lover that you want to run to, it will leave you disappointed. Only Jesus can satisfy. Only Jesus is better. Only Jesus paid it all. Only Jesus took a wrecking ball to your sins. Only Jesus took a wrecking ball to your past. Only Jesus remembers your sins no more. It is finished, Grace. Jesus paid it all. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, for the life that he lived and the death that he died in our place. What glorious news the gospel is that you'll be merciful and gracious to sinners and remember our sins no more, all because of your son, our great, faithful, and merciful high priest who intercedes for us even now. May you get great glory as we sing once again of your son and what it will be like when we stand before him on that day complete covered in his righteousness to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.